If you remember last week, if you were here, if you weren't here, I'm going to go through just a quick review of what we learned last week because what we're going to talk about today so strongly piggybacks on um, what we talked about last week. It's actually a a, a further extension. Um, We began introducing the book of James last week, and uh, the way we introduced the book of James was to say, um, let me turn this on, there we go, simply to say that the book of James is a second commandment letter. It's a second commandment letter. Now, you know the two great commandments that Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first great commandment. The second great commandment, Jesus said, is very close to it, very like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. The key to the second commandment is not just you shall love your neighbor, but Jesus actually tells you how to love your neighbor. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. So we spent a good amount of time last week talking about what it means for us as, as the people of God to understand this this quality, this idea, this clear comparison that Jesus gives us. What does it mean for me to love my neighbor? We think that's all about missional ministry. That's how the church has packaged it. It means you serve your neighbor. It means you have your neighbor over for dinner. It means you help your neighbor. It means that you, you give to the wider uh, you know, work of the kingdom. It means that you're engaged in this ministry, maybe engaged in this ministry. It's always about that. Um, well, Jesus would, I think, beg to differ at that as a starting point. Those things might come out of that, but Jesus says you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he doesn't expound on it more than that. Like, he just seems to understand that we understand that what he's now saying makes sense. Which, if you're of the Judaic mindset, it absolutely makes sense. The the whole idea is, is love your neighbor as you love yourself. I mean, look at the amount of Old Testament scriptures that are up there. The book of James also is the last time that we see this phrase, as yourself, um, brought out in scripture. And so, too, I I think that to love our neighbor, which we all want to do, it's very important to understand what this means, right? To love yourself means that you simply align yourself with God. It means that that you align yourself with God who is love. The, The key word here is not yourself. The key word in this commandment is still love. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if God is the definition of love, if God is the fullness of love, then when it comes to us asking ourselves, well, how do I love myself? We shake off all that churchy shame crap that's been loaded onto us for years and years saying, you shouldn't think about yourself at all. You shouldn't care about yourself at all. Anytime you do, you're stepping into pride. We we walk away from that. We repent from that. We turn toward God and say, God, you're love. You you love us perfectly. On some level, you're telling me to love my neighbor as I love myself. I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Can you teach me what it means to love myself? And I think that this is what we see in Scripture as a pretty clear response from God. You should view you the way I view you. Because I view you lovingly. I I view you with full love. I view you with perfect love. So why don't you get in line with me, and when you look at you, why don't you look at you the way I look at you? And there's room in there for truth, right? There's room in there for grace. There's room in there for righteousness and holiness. There's room in there for freedom. There's room in there for serving. There's room in there for resting. This is what it means to love God and to walk with him. God views you as a son. God, God views you as his son. As a reminder um, to all the ladies in the house, um, you are sons. Right? All the men in the house, you are bride. Right? The, the fullness of the image of God is male and female. He created them. God presents himself in hum- to, to humans in this world as male and female. You all have male and female dynamic in you from a spiritual identity standpoint. We're all the bride of Christ. We're all sons of God. All right? We're specifically focusing on this sonship thing. We will get to the brideship thing, the bridehood thing, sorry. Um, so 
This is how God loves us. He loves us unfailingly and invites us to receive his unfailing love with Christ as sons. And that with Christ thing, that's really important. Because if you were to ask God, like, how much do you love me? His, quest, his answer is, I love you as much as I love Jesus. Right? How much does he love Jesus? I mean, how crazy about Jesus is God, is, is his father? You know, he's just he's nuts about him. Right? I mean, just head over heels, insane in love with his son. Right? The same way that a good parent is with their son and daughter. You know, just this, this overwhelming affection, this, this, this never-ending patience. Well, sometimes it ends, right? <laughs> right? But there's always more, right? And there's always grace, and there's always goodness, and there's always a return home. We're going to talk about this. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, I'm reviewing. Um, so, sonship, just as an easy, easy definition, sonship is an identity gift from God. It's an identity gift from God to those that he has spiritually adopted into his family. You once were an orphan, a slave of sin. Jesus has bought you with his blood, and you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You are now a part of the family of God, and the enemy has no claim to that. I want to talk some more about that today as well. But that's what sonship is, an identity gift of adoption. This is a way that we think of ourselves corporately as well as individually. Not only are you a son, but you are also... You are all, we, are, we are also sons, which means that we are also brothers. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We are spiritual family. The family concept is the overriding picture of this narrative of Scripture. And there's other pictures that are thrown in there, body, bride, those things. But when it comes to the idea, this family idea is, is the big one. So we are a body of worshipers rooted in sonship. We wrapped up thinking about these two thoughts. Number one is that the heart of the Father is unsearchable and inexhaustible. You are seeking that which you will never be able to experience fully. Folks, you've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. There is no such place as okay. If you say, I just want to be okay. I just want everything to be okay. I just want every, there is no such destination. Right? Joy is not a place that you arrive at. Joy is a journey that you're on. The more that you learn God loves you, the more you realize how much more you have to learn that God loves you. The more you experience the grace of God, the more you see the depths of the grace of God beneath you. Continuing, the more that you experience who God is and the fullness of who he is and how he gives himself to you, the more you learn how much more there is to receive and to know of him, how much more intimacy there is to walk in, how much more safety and security there is to be experienced. Like this is the path of sonship is that as you grow and as you experience, there is ever more and more and more. That's what Paul prays for us in, in uh, Ephesians 3, to experience that which we can never fully experience. And this is where I want to pick up today, that the continuing, never-ending path to deeper sonship in Christ always begins and ends with listening. Right? It always begins and ends with listening. In the scriptures, your ears are your primary sense. Listening is your primary sense. If you think of yourself as a spiritual being with the five senses, seeing, tasting, touching, um, listening, I'm missing one. Thank you, smelling. <laughs> We're all engaged, right? But listening is the one that stuck out there. Like, this is where it starts. This is where it starts. Listening is the primary spiritual sense. Listening is the place that sonship begins and ends. And when your sonship begins to get off, when you begin to get, it, there is a return to listening. Usually, our instinct, when our sonship begins to be eroded or pulled at, our first instinct is to talk. To talk a lot. And oftentimes accusatorily. Right? To God, to our family, to our friends, to the people around us. 
when in actuality, God keeps bringing us back to the quietness of his own voice. Right? Sonship is about listening. Sonship is about listening. And it's with that that we will um, that we'll pick up today's teaching. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for the beauty that is Jesus and his glory, which we desire to see exalted and esteemed in all the world. God, show us what it means for us to be your children and to walk with you as sons. God, open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits, open our souls to your deep work. God, we don't, we don't just want to like, uh, we don't just want to scratch the surface. Um, we want to go, we want to go deep with you. We want to go into you. You know, beyond application, um, beyond just a, even a conversation, God, we long for intimacy with you, for like a connection between our heart and your heart. So unveil that for us today, Father. Lift scales from our eyes. And may today we receive your perspective, your view, your eyes, your words. We love you, God. We rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in Luke 15, if you look at verse 1, Tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes are all gathered together, right? So Jesus has the wide perspective of the people that would live in his day at this point. Right in front of him are a bunch of sinners and losers and people who know that they're sinners and losers, right? Tax collectors, they're, they're, they're despised, much like the IRS might be today, poor people. Um, you know, the, the sinners are the people that know that they're looked down upon, the ones who know that they're unclean to go into the temple, the ones who know that the synagogue worship is something for them to stand at the fringes of, right? They're marginalized. They're pushed back. Also standing in front of them are the people who do everything right, right? The Pharisees and the scribes, the ones who have all the self-righteousness, the ones who feel the authority to question the Son of God, right? All these folks are standing before him. And Jesus tells, um, well, look at verse 2. They're actually, the Pharisees and scribes are, are grumbling. This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So Jesus tells three stories, right? Three stories about three lost things. The first story is a story about sheep that gets lost, right? There's a hundred sheep. The shepherd counts them as they go in. He's missing one. He immediately leaves, and he goes out, and he seeks, and he finds that sheep, and he brings it back to the fold, right? The next story is about a woman who lost ten coins. She loses ten coins, she does, or she loses a coin. She doesn't know what to do with it. She, doesn't, she can't find it herself. She calls friends. She calls family. And somebody help me look for this thing. And she looks and looks until she finds it. The parable of the prodigal son, which is how I'll refer to it, because both of these boys are lost. The parable of the prodigal sons is interesting because the dad doesn't go out searching. That's interesting, right? The first story, the shepherd goes out and he looks and looks and looks until he finds the sheep. The second story, the woman looks and looks and looks until she finds the coin. The third story, the dad stays at home, and he waits, and he releases his son, younger son, 
and he releases his older son because apparently, you know, things aren't quite right between their relationship either. He said, there was a man who had two sons. I'm in verse 11. Now I'm in verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Now remember, this is a day when there's no, there's no IRAs, right? There's no banks. This father doesn't have his fortune stored up somewhere where it's building, uh, you know, where it's gaining interest. The inheritance in these days, this man is a farmer, we learn. The inheritance in these days is land. And when you sell land, you lose the land. You don't get it back. It's not like the father gave away part of his retirement income and hoping that at some point the interest would make up some of his loss that his son squanders. When the father gives this younger son his inheritance, it is gone forever. The land belongs to someone else now. The father has been cut into who he is, his reputation as a farmer. I mean, think about what that would look like to the other farmers around him. The father makes a huge sacrifice in giving his son his inheritance early. Not only that, but it's massive offense, right? Hey, Dad, can you, I know you're not dead yet, but I sort of wish you were because I'd like to go have fun in a far country, right? Um, a far country. That's not, I guess the name of, like, Canada, you know? <laughs> Where do you want a vacation? I'd like to go to a far country. That sounds like fun. So he spent everything. Verse 14 a uh, severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Well, that's pretty offensive too. Here's a Jewish boy feeding pigs, right? Jews don't do pork. Like this is, this is, as, this is really, really low. That's how the, far this boy's gotten. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. (coughs) Frankly, legally speaking, the boy is absolutely right. I mean, the level of offense and irresponsibility. This is... From a cultural standpoint, everything the boy hatches up is absolutely right. Yes, you're right. You are no longer worthy to be called my son. Uh-huh. Um, I may or may not have compassion on you by letting you come and giving you what it is that you say that you want, which is for me to be your boss now. Right? From a legal standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, everything the boy has hatched has, has every, every right to happen. If you're a servant standing around and the boy's explaining himself, you know, you're agreeing with him. Like, yes, yes, this is... And if the dad were to say yes, that's a massive act of compassion. If the father in this were to say, yes, come and be one of my servants, live out there in the servants' quarters, work from dawn till dark, and, you know, I'll see you around. That, that's an absolute massive act of compassion on the father's part. The father responds 
So right off the bat, like Henri Nouwen says, right, with goodness, generosity, and forgiveness, they are immediate reactions. Immediate reactions. There is no question about what is going on. First of all, the father was expectant that the boy was going to come home, right? He was watching. And he saw him, which means he had been remembering him. He saw him a far way off, right? He knew what his gait looked like. He knew what, he knew what his form looked like as it came down the road. He runs out, embraces him, and kisses him, overjoyed that the boy that was lost is now found, has now come home. And he said, verse 22, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to be celebrate and, and be glad, to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The younger son is just as lost as the older son. He has the exact same perspective that the younger son has. The older son thinks the same way about dad that the younger son thinks, which is, I work for you. Like, yes, you're my father, but essentially you're my employer. And we can see that by the way the relationship works when it hits the rocks, which is how you can tell how any relationship works, right? The relationship hits the rocks, things get tense, dad does something the older son doesn't appreciate, and the older son responds with self-righteousness, the older son responds with anger and with bitterness, and he says to his father, look, I've been doing all the right things for this whole time, and you've never even given me a little party, let alone the massive one that this loser is getting. Don't you realize how he treated you? Don't you realize how I've treated you? Where's my due? What's interesting is the father's response. Do you see what he said to him? What else could the older son want? Son, you have always been with me, and everything I have also belongs to you. What the older son wanted was elevation, right? What the older son wanted was for his father to prove to him that he was better than that younger son. He wanted a public admittance that on the scales of love, on the grading scale, before the father, younger son was here, older son was here. What else could the father have said to satisfy his older son? You have always been with me. No argument, right? He doesn't argue with him. Wow, do you remember that time that you mouthed off to your mother? Do you remember that time that you left the corral open and, you know, ten sheep got out and we lost one to a wolf? Like, remember those things? Which certainly had to have happened at some point. He doesn't argue with him. You've always been with me. Right? You, you've always been with me and everything that I have is yours. What else could the older son have wanted? 
He wanted his father to not be a father. He wanted employee of the month. And he wanted his younger brother to get fired for his lousy work record. And both these boys are thinking of God as an employer. Tell me you don't struggle with that. I know I do. Tell me you don't feel better about yourself when you see yourself living more spiritually in line with God than somebody else, especially somebody close to you, in conflict. Right? Isn't it great to be right when you're in conflict? Isn't there like a feeling to that? Like, yeah, sure, we're fighting it out right now, but I'm right. The other person is saying the exact same thing, which always makes for a fun conversation, right? And at some point, one of us is going to win, right? And this is what we want. This is, this is how we live, with performance reviews, you know, with God. Give me my checklist of what I can do. H- how can I be the best employee for you? God doesn't desire this relationship at all, at all. Younger son treated dad like dad. He just treated him poorly as dad, saying, Dad, I want you to die and give me the thing that you're supposed to give me in the future now. But because you're my dad, I can ask you of this. To which the father says, okay, you're released. Go run. Go do all the things that you think you want to do. When you want to come home, home will be here, and so will I. Right? And he goes. His mind gets twisted. Things get screwed up in there. My father isn't who I thought that he was. He's actually now my employer. I can work the situation like this. Comes home. Father just freaks out on him with love and draws him back into the family. And the son receives the party. The younger son receives the party. You notice that, right? The older son, we have no idea what happens to this kid. We have no idea what happens to the older son. The story just stops. But if you think about it in terms of the crowd that Jesus is talking to, the sinners and tax collectors are the younger son. The Pharisees and the scribes are the older son. And what do we see the Pharisees do in the book of Luke in just 10 short chapters? Right, so there's this, there's this disconnect, particularly focusing on, on the older son and this disconnect that both of these boys have, um, but that particularly comes out in, in the older son and his ability to engage God uh, or engage the father, in this case, with the words that dad says. Every, you've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. You've always been with me. Everything I've had is yours. If you hear this from your father, like, that's a pretty secure place to be. That's a very secure place to be. The rest of the inherit, all that you see belongs to you. But it's not enough. It's not enough for the older son. The father's words don't transform the way the older son thinks about either the father or himself. And that's what I want to talk about today. When we look at the concept of sonship and the way that sonship plays itself out, look, sonship is your identity, right? You have been bought with the blood of Christ. You have been given the life of Jesus. You have been transferred darkness into light. You have been redeemed. You've been sealed in the Holy Spirit. You've been washed with the blood of the Lamb. You are eternally secure forever and ever. God is your safety. He's your fortress. He's your father. He's your lover. Everything from a sonship standpoint has been made right. Right? The, the, the enemy does not touch that. The enemy can't touch that. He doesn't have any access to your sonship. Your identity cannot be shifted. You can live not like an orphan instead of a son, but you're still a son. How you choose to live in the ins and outs of your life, you know, that's what the journey of life is when, when you know Christ. But you are a son. The enemy can never take that away. He doesn't have a right to that. 
And so because he knows he doesn't have a right to that, he goes after something else. Right? And I submit to you today, as we talk together, that what the enemy is, since he can't have your sonship, what he goes after is your legitimacy. He goes after your legitimacy as a son. He tells you, you might be a son, like you might be adopted, but you're still just an orphan. Like you don't actually belong in the family. You're not a legitimate son. You don't have a right to claim the things that you think that you do. You don't have a right to, you don't have a right to say to God, the things that Jesus have, has also should belong to me. Like you don't have that right. Your legitimacy comes up for grabs. Legitimacy is this, right? Legitimacy is this. You can obviously see the word legitimate in, in the word legitimacy. And yeah, I know I'm using a lot of words in these definitions, but I really want to explain it fully, right? Legitimacy is a gift from God, just like sonship, right? Legitimacy is a gift from God to his children based on, in, and on the sonship of Christ. You notice this. What was sonship based on? The sonship of of Christ, legitimacy is based on the sonship of Christ. How legitimate a son was Jesus? Fully, right? I, I mean, son of God himself, God of God, right? Firstborn among all creation. This is Jesus, fully legitimate. The legitimacy that you've been given in Christ as a son is the same legitimacy that is based in the sonship of Christ. And that sonship, that legitimacy claims, bears, and names a person, Formerly an enemy of God and orphaned by sin. To be a legitimate son of God with all the rights and privileges therein granted and implied. My best lawyer speak. Right? You are legitimate because Jesus is legitimate. You are not legitimate because you won. Right? You are not legitimate because the younger son's down here and you're the older son up here. This is a false dichotomy. Actually, the scriptures call this a lot more than a false. They call this disunity. The scriptures call this causing strife in the body of Christ. I mean, the scriptures don't mess around with this. Uh, a lot of you are sick and have died because you take the Lord's communion with this thing in place. That, 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 that's how bad this can get. Right? So this thing doesn't even exist. Legitimacy is given to all sons of God. Legitimacy is based on the sonship of Christ. How legitimate a son was Jesus, that's how legitimate you are. How legitimate a son was the younger son? Completely legitimate, right? Why? Because that was his dad, right? His parents engaged in a beautiful, God-honoring act of sex, birthed a child as a result of it, and that's theirs. That's mine. You are my boy. And it doesn't matter. And there's a lot of people, not, maybe not a lot, there's some people in here who are old enough to have watched their sons or daughters walk away and come back who can ex stand up and give testimony to the fact that my love, their sonship, their daughterhood, and my family never was up for grabs. Right? That's what a good parent does. A good parent waits. A good parent prays. A good parent cries. A good parent begs. Right? But that belonging in the family, there's no question. There's no question, especially not with God. Now we're talking about fallen people right now, but when you put that into God, there's not fallen at all, who loves perfectly, who's completely patient, who's, whose ways are always right, it's always good. Like his heart is always for his son. And because his heart is always for his son, you have been adopted into the same family as Jesus. Jesus is not only your savior, he is your brother. He's your older brother, firstborn before all creation, 
over all things, right? He is with you. You are with him. You are not just an observer of the divine nature. You are a partaker in the divine nature. What has been blessed upon Christ has been blessed upon you. And you have a legitimate right to stand up and to say, I am a son of God. Which is what Jesus did all the time, right? All over the place. He goes all around the nation of Israel, talking about himself in the third person. Right now, I don't encourage you to do that because that's weird. Um, But I guess in there... Culture, it made more sense. Or maybe Jesus was just weird. Who knows? You know, um, it's not weird to think of a weird Savior. I mean, some of the stuff he did was pretty weird. Um, that'd, be, that'd be a good sermon series at some point. The weird Jesus. That's good stuff. All right. Um, I was talking about something. Yeah. Always proclaiming himself. Son of man, son of God. Right? Anybody gets in the way of his sonship, Jesus' sonship was supposed to take him to the cross. We all know that, right? Jesus' sonship was to take him to the cross. One of his closest friends, certainly the one closest in age to him, the apostle Peter, at one point says, Jesus, you shouldn't go to the cross. What are you talking about? Peter is delegitimizing Jesus' sonship in that. Right? Peter is saying to Jesus, you don't have to be a son the way that God told you you need to be a son. How does Jesus respond to Peter? How strong does he get with him? He calls him the devil. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand God's ways. Right? You ever accuse one of your friends of being Satan? Right? <laughs> Particularly in the midst of like a spiritual conversation? <laughs> Legitimacy is the words of God given to you that says who you are. That's why sonship always begins and ends with listening. Sonship is always about listening. And when your legitimacy as a son, when your identity comes into question, which is always what the enemy's after, although he can't have it, he can toy with it, he can play with it. What he goes after is God's words. He goes after God's words. And I want to show you this as clearly as I can. An interesting, just aside here. Do I have time for this? Not really. Okay. Um, the enemy has no right to claim to you anymore. That's good. Um, the result of legitimacy is calling. Right? The result of legitimacy is calling. As a result of being a legitimate son, God calls you to participate in what he's doing. Calling is a gift from God to his children based in and on the obedience of Christ that invites an adopted, legitimized son of God into victorious participation in the kingdom of God in the unique way in which God has designed, gifted, and equipped that son. People say that, like, uh, you know, to adopt a sonship, particularly in a corporate setting, is to make me question my individuality, is to ask me to sacrifice my personhood in order to, like, become of a, a part of a bigger thing. No, absolutely not. If that's happening in a corporate setting, then that means that legitimacy is not in place. That's a group of orphans getting together. Uh, that's a group of orphans getting together and saying, you know, like, uh, you, know, you don't have a place, and you don't have a place, or my place is better than your place, you know, and I'm here, and you're here, but in this situation, you're here, and I'm here, and oh, I wish I could be like you. Or, uh, it, gets, it gets so ugly and so dirty so fast, right? It's a shame-based theology. It's a shame-based way of thinking about God. It's destructive and hurtful on every level. You get a bunch of legitimate sons together who can receive their call- calling. Calling is this. You ready for a p- good picture of calling? 
Trey, take out the trash. That's calling. My son is so legitimate that I invite him into the government of my home. I'm in charge of my house, right? I pay for my house. I run my house. If my kids start thinking that they can run the house, things are going to change, right? Because this is dad's house, and you, because I love you, because you're my son, I'm not going to let you sit around and play Xbox all day and let your brain melt out your ear. I'm not going to let you get D's and F's in your report card all the time just because you want to, you know? I don't care how much you're trying to express yourself as a son. That's not going to happen in this situation. What you are going to do is take the trash out. Why? Because the trash needs to go out, right? Right? And, and, and my home needs to work a certain way. Dad goes out to work. Mom goes out to work. The, the kids are growing up. We, at some point, know that they're going to need to get up and go out to work. They're going to need to go, get up and go be a part of a community. They're going to need to have uh, um, friendships that are healthy. They're going to need to go pursue their education. They're going to need to achieve dreams and, 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 you know, Lord willing, marry someone and be a responsible parent in that regard. What does that mean? How do we get there? You take the trash out. Why? Because you're a son. You're a son. I, I, I remember one time, my own dad, who's sitting right there, I wanted to go off to uh, um, Montrose Bible Conference for a summer and work as a, 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 like a maintenance man, do ministry there, right? And uh, so I had this opportunity, this great ministry opportunity, and that's how I painted it to my dad. My dad asked me if I made my bed that day. Right? That's a good question, right? The answer was no. No, I hadn't. And then the follow-up question was, well, like, you want to go far away and serve Jesus, but you can't do what we asked you to do. Right? I mean, good stuff. Good stuff in that. He's calling out my legitimacy. He's not beating me down because I didn't do my chore. Right? There's, 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 there's ways to do the, 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 the legitimacy of a son in the home says, you have a responsibility, a participation in this. Come be with me in this. That's what calling is. The beautiful thing about being in God's family is that this calling that he gives you, he releases in you through your gifts, through your design, through who he made you to be as an individual in the midst of a community. And we together live in this beautiful dynamic and dance that is our God. We'll talk more about that next week. And... He is always winning, right? So like the calling that he calls you to, no matter how painful it gets or how bad and dark it might be, it's always a win. That's what it means to be a legitimate son, is that you're a son with calling. You have a responsibility in the kingdom. But the enemy will come at that, and he will attack your legitimacy, and he'll turn your calling into legalism. He'll turn your calling into a chore list for you to check off with God. And he does that by twisting the enemy's words. The enemy has no, did I just say that? He'll do that by twisting God's words. Right? The enemy will do that by twisting God's words. This is why listening is the beginning and ending point of sonship. God is speaking. When God speaks, things happen. It makes stuff Right? It takes nothing and makes something. God speaks and things are redeemed. God speaks and mountains move. Right? God speaks and things happen. When God speaks and names you as a son of God, right? that shifts things. That changes things. When God communicates with you about how to live as a son, as a legitimate son, in your calling, and who he made you to be, in your design, right? those things matter. 
His communication to you is real. But the enemy wants to twist them. He wants to turn them. And when he can do that, he can get your legitimacy. He can't get your sonship, but he can get you to believe you're an orphan. He can get you to live with a lesser view of God. The enemy doesn't have a lot of weapons in his arsenal when it comes to this. He's only got two, but he wields them very effectively. The two ways he does it is deception and accusation, both of which are his words versus God's words. Genesis 3. You don't have to turn there, but listen to it. God makes Adam and Eve. Everything's great. Everything's perfect. They're living together in perfect, harmonious intimacy. It can be no better than it is at this point in time. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say? Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? So she dialogues with him. He sets the attack. He, sets the, he, he gets just a question in there about dad's words. Yes, uh, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you, can, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, or touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What did God say? God said you'll die. What did the serpent say? Eh, you're not going to die. Right? Here's God's words. Here's the enemy's words. These two things butt heads. And what is happening here is the act of deception. And the question is whose words will win? Whose words will win? God's words have already won, but whose words will win in your life? Whose words will win in that instant? Like whose words will will win in this situation? Deception is particularly uh, focused around one thing. Yes, it's words, but it's particularly words that are trying to get you to believe something that is not true about God. Deception wants you to give, deception is trying to get you to believe something not true about God. The enemy deceives here, right? He twists God's words, trying to get Eve to think differently about what, who God was than what he had said to her that he was. God clearly communicated to her. He had given himself to her. They, he had given her the garden to live in, right? It was, everything was perfect. The enemy comes in and just twists, just manipulates, just a bit. Did God actually say this? And then he straight up lies. You will not surely die. Then he accuses God. God just knows that he, God's, God's very, you know how he can be. Right? Like, he's just afraid that you're going to end up like him. He likes to be on his own. He likes to have his own place. He knows that if you eat this, you're going to end up just like he is. Tell me that's not something attractive. Right? The twisting twists harder, harder, harder until we are in full-blown lie. And she's completely buying it. Right? And so is Adam. I mean, Adam completely buys it too. Deception is trying to get you to believe something about, th- it, it's, it's about who you're going to listen to. Who are you going to listen to? Another key place to think of this, and you can turn to this one, is in Matthew 3, for another example. Verse 13, and then we'll continue right into chapter 4. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, but to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. All right, so the whole trinity is in place here because God is about to speak. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Right? Heaven's open. Jesus is in the water. Holy Spirit's there. God's voice is there. The Trinity is in unity in this point, And there is a declaration from God. God's words in front of all those people. This is my son. This is my son. Verse 1, chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, what? If you are the son. What did God just say? You are my son. What does the enemy do? He just throws an if into the situation. He just gets the statement to be questionable. Right? If you are the son, then God would give you this. He says it again, second temptation. If you are the son of God, then God will take care of you like this. Right? If you are the son of God, you deserve to be worshipped. You can be worshipped on my terms if you want. I'll give you half everything I have. Kingdoms of the earth, all yours. You can get all the worship you deserve right now. Right? When Jesus was just told, this is my son, in him I'm well pleased. When the tempter comes to him, his goal is to deceive him. If you are the son of God. If Jesus, he, he just heard, you are the son of God. And he just wants to, he, what he goes after is God's words. He goes after God's words. He does the same thing to you. He just wants to twist what God has told you, which is why the beginning and ending point of sonship is listening. Intimacy with Christ. It's not just an exercise. It's not something to go through. It's, it's, not, it's not a thing to do. It is your lifeline to who your identity is. If you want to live as who God made you to be, then you must stay connected to God, listening to God. Intimacy with Christ is absolutely everything because it is that that is the communicative way that God continues to speak your sonship to you and to develop your sonship in you and to walk with you in that. So many of us think that we have listened to God enough. Like, I've done the church thing. I read my Bible this morning. You know, I prayed a prayer here or there. I go to church and small group. You know, I respect God and I honor God when I'm out in nature and by myself. I feel all of these great things. And then we live our lives from that point, leaving all of that back there and then just sort of like walking, still interacting without this actually defining us. Because God's words to us, we just, we, 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 don't, we don't honor them. We don't value them. We leave them. The enemy comes in with deception, and he wants us to believe something wrong about God. Accusation is equally destructive. The goal of accusation is to get you to believe something wrong about yourself. And when the enemy accuses you, he doesn't use second-person pronouns. He doesn't say, you're a loser. He whispers, I'm a loser. He says, I'm a loser. And all he wants you to do is say, yes, I agree. The enemy is all about agreements. 
It, all he needs you to do is, is yes, that's right, that's right. I'm greedy. Right? I'm shameful. I'm spoiled. I'm ruined. I'm dirty. And God's words come to these things, to these covenants, to these agreements, these things that we've made from all kinds of places, from our past, the way that we were raised, the choices that we've made, the things that we've embraced. And we walk with these covenants and with these agreements with the enemy based around his words to us about who we are. And these things are loud and strong and valid. Right? They need processing. They need walked through. But what they most need is the word of God. They most need the definition that God can bring to who you are in your identity. Because it's God's words that were come against in that. It's God's words that w- and your identity for who he made you to be that were ripped apart in that experience. Right? Or in that choice. Or in this way you lived your life for that season. Accusation is to get you to believe something that is not true about you. So legitimacy in action. Two examples for you. One biblical and one non-biblical. I'll do the non-biblical one first. I just had this cool interaction with a friend of mine um, who has um, uh, recently gotten engaged. And this is interesting because this is the second time that I've encountered this in a, in a while um, or in the last, in the last few weeks. Uh, she got engaged and since that time has been feeling a lot of anxiety about it. She couldn't figure out why. And this is what she communicated to me. I turned a corner this weekend I'm choosing with God's help to lay the anxiety down, recognizing that it's not his voice. Mom told me this story. On the day that she married Dad, her father said to her right before the wedding, it's not too late, not too late to change your mind until you say, I do. She told me the story in the context of talking about their divorce as a way of saying that maybe she should have taken the way out when her dad offered it to her. I've realized over the last week that I've been paying extra attention to every anxious thought or feeling of disappointment as though they are words of warning, and if I don't listen to them, I'll make a mistake. I was trying to protect myself instead of letting God do that. But God has been giving me multiple reminders over the past week that this is not what his voice sounds like. As the truth of this sinks in, the joy and excitement I feel about being engaged is increasing. My prayer is that when the anxiety comes, I recognize it for what it is and surrender it to Jesus instead of indulging it. That's legitimacy. That is a simple walk of legitimacy, of here is this thing that comes from a massive point in the past, right? A parent, parental divorce as a kid, that's a big deal. Agreements and wounds around it that have walked up now here to the future, and now she's engaging new and real, and the question is, okay, here are these words of anxiety and of fear, and here's words, Jesus' words of reception of something good and acceptance and life, and what's going to Like, whose voice is going to be listened to here? Are all of these voices? Or is the voice that I'm hearing from my father right now with this massive act of goodness given to me? There's another one. I think I have a picture of this. Yeah. I think that this is the most profound, one of the most profound stories of sonship, not about Jesus, like in the scriptures, particularly in the gospels. The disciples are in a boat, 
and a big storm comes up. And they're terrified. And when lifelong fishermen get afraid of a storm, you know it's a really bad storm. Jesus isn't overly afraid of the storm. In fact, he just walks on the water. And he walks out on the water. And he's walking to them, and they see him coming from a distance. And they are terrified because they think that he's a ghost. But then somebody says, no, that's Jesus. Well, Peter, being Peter, calls out, and Jesus says, calm down, it's me. Peter says, Lord, if that's actually you, tell me to come out there on the water with you. Now, at this point in time, right, before Peter gets out of the boat, is Peter's identity or walk with Jesus on any level would Peter identify himself as a water walker? Like, Peter, what do you do for fun? I like to fish, I like to play with my kids, and I like to go for journeys on lakes. In a boat? No, I just walk. Right? Would Peter have had the identity of a water walker at all? No. Up to this point in time, did he have the calling of a water walker at all? No. No. What did he engage in this situation? He said, Jesus, I really want to know you. Now, he might not have known what he was saying. How many of you can testify to that? Dear Lord, please help me know you. And then this situation comes by which to know him. And you're like, I don't want to know you like that. But by that time, you're in it. What are you going to do? Right? You either get in further with the intimacy or you go to orphan and you live illegitimate. And it's a really painful journey to get home eventually. And then God's gracious, good, and forgiving when you do. God bless him. I just said that. That's funny. Um, God bless God. Um, I guess that's legit, theologically. Anyway, back to the thing. Peter is in no level a water walker. No piece of his identity or calling has ever walked on water before. He never did it. But he did say, if it's really you, call me. Like, so if, if you're like that right now, can I know you in that space? That's what Peter says. Can I know you in that? And Jesus says, come out here. And this is the coolest thing about Peter. The dude puts his money where his mouth is. Right? If I'm Peter in that spot, I'm like, no. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. Because uh, I already thought I was going to die in the boat. Right? Let alone getting out of the boat. But apparently Peter's in one of those, like, really cool spots with Jesus where you're sort of, like, swept away outside of logic. You know? Like the same place that David got to when he danced naked. You know? That kind of a thing. It's like everything's whirling and moving, and I don't even... Before, before Peter knows it, boom, he's out, on, he's, he's out of the boat, and he's not sinking. But I don't think that he knows that he's not sinking, right? At least that's what the scriptures say, because he's walking on water. The scriptures say, and he walked toward him on the water. So he's walking toward Jesus on the water. His identity formerly had been not a water walker. But he said Jesus to Jesus, I want to know you in that environment. I want to know you in that way. Jesus said, come out here and know me in that way. And Peter's identity, his calling, it grows. It shifts. The dynamics open. Something bigger is happening now. Something interesting is happening. And he's out and walking on the water. And the man who was previously not a water walker on any level at all, can now literally identify himself for the rest of his life as a water walker. That's cool. Right? 
I mean, that's an amazing experience. Nobody else can say this. He's walking toward Jesus on the water. And uh, scriptures say that he takes his eyes off Christ and he starts looking around him. And he looks around and he sees to himself, these are some big waves, right? And this is some mighty wind. And I'm, well, I mean, I had to have clicked. Like, what? I, this is what he said. I can't be doing what I'm doing, right? I can't logically, physically be doing what I'm doing. And when he does that, boom, he sinks. Sinks. Jesus is right there, grabs him, pulls him up, right? So now he's back on the water again because they walked back to the boat together. They didn't teleport. They walked back to the boat together. Jesus reaches down, grabs him, looks at him, and says what to him? Peter, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And here's the thing. Look, if you don't hear anything else I hear today, <laughs> I say today, hear this. This is, this is important stuff. No one's faith at this point needed to be in Jesus walking on water. Right? Nobody needed to have faith. They weren't, stand, this, they weren't on the beach and Jesus turned to them and go, hey, do you guys have faith that I can walk on water? Do you think I could actually walk on water? No, I don't think that. Eh, we think that. Well, and then some have faith and some don't. Jesus goes out and trots on the water, comes back and says, you guys have little faith and you have big faith. No, no, everyone has faith right now that Jesus can walk on water. How do we know that? Because he's walking on water, right? I mean, it's actually happening. It, when he pulls him up and he says, oh, you have little faith, he's not saying to Peter, why didn't you have faith in me? He is not saying that. Everyone's faith was in Jesus that he could walk on water because he was walking on water. When Peter gets pulled up and Jesus says to him, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? What he is asking him is why did you doubt you? Why did you start believing you couldn't do this? Your faith in you was small. Your faith in you to be able to be like me and to receive my invitation to do what I'm doing and to come out here with me, you believed it for a little bit, but your faith was small, and that's why you sunk, because you doubted you. you folks, God believes in you. He believes in you because he believes in his own son. Right? And with the obedience that Jesus walked, which was perfect obedience, with the calling that Jesus lived out as a legitimate son, which was absolute and across the board, because of Jesus' perfect work, you and I, Jesus says it himself, you will do greater things than I have done. Seriously. Like, he's not, he's not just blowing smoke. Like, he's perfectly legitimate. Like, you're going to get the Holy Spirit, and you're going to do greater things than what you've seen me do. I believe that I believe in you that you're going to see great things in you. God believes in you. He believes that you can be who it is that he called you to be. He believes that you can walk what he's called you to walk. That when you say you're there and I'm here and I want to be there with you and he says come that you can do that. And yeah. Sometimes you've got small faith and we sink into the sea. Do we drown? Nope. We get pulled up. And you know, when Jesus says that, I think he's laughing. <laughs> you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? 
You don't need to doubt. You were walking on water. You, you were doing it. You were doing it. Let's do it together again. Let's go back to the guys that didn't get out of the boat. You know? We've got a unique experience now. We've got a thing. Not a thing that puts younger son here and older son here, but just a cool point of intimacy. Just a place of connection with God. A place of so strong connections. I don't need to compare myself to you or to you or to you or to you. I don't need to look around and be like, man, I wish I could measure up here. I wish I could be that. I wish I could do that. I can rest in the fact that I'm a water walker. And you might be saying to yourself right now, Jay, I am not a water walker. Neither was Peter. Nobody was a water walker. People don't walk on water. Are you crazy? Do we need to have a scientific demonstration of this? No, but Peter did. And you can look at God all day long and say, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that. And he's never going to stop telling you that, yes, you are. God, I'm not righteous. God, I'm not brave. God, I'm too wounded. God, it's been too much. God, you're asking too much of me. God, you're out there and I'm here. And frankly, I don't want to come out there to you. Come out. Come out. Be here. I can't. I can't. I'm not that. I don't walk on water. I don't heal people. I don't experience miracles in my life. I'm not a good prayer. Right? I can't read well, so I, I can't engage your word. Right? I can't hear from God. I can't get away from my past. I can't draw good boundaries in my friendships. Right? I can't understand the wounding that's happened to me in the past. I can't re-engage deep points of pain. I can't process with God who he wants me to be right now. I'm just trying to hold on and get from one day to the next. Friends, you are a water walker. And there is an experience, a point of intimacy, that is just you and God that he's calling you to. That he's saying, come out here. Because I believe in you. I believe that you can do what I do. I believe that you can be like me. First Peter says this so beautifully. His divine, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness according to the one who called us by his own glory and goodness to be partakers in his divine nature. Did you hear that? Partakers in his divine nature. Christians, it is time to stop observing Christ's divine nature. We sit back and we look at it and we go, oh, isn't that great? Let's go home and get back to real life. We've, our, I, God is so tired of being observed. He wants to be participated with. He wants to be danced with. All right? He wants to be enjoyed. God's, God's whole motif in the scripture is the meal. Come and sit down with me. Let's talk and let's eat and let's engage. Let me feed you. Let me give you good stuff. And let me look at you in your eyes. Let me tell you how much I love you. And let's be together in this situation. Let's get together as a family and do it. Let's get together once a week as a family. Let's tell dad how great he is. And let's together follow his voice to walk on water. What do you say? Anybody up for that? I think we should do that. I think we should walk as legitimate sons of God who say to the enemy, no more. You will not define me. You, your words will not beat God's words. And sometimes the enemy's words can be so loud that you can't hear God's voice, which is why we have one another. Because God's voice is everywhere. It's active, and it's moving, and it's living. And God does not call you to live alone. 
And you do not have to be a scared, balled up, orphan in the corner, coming out every now and then to do something good for God and to keep him happy. You have a place at the table. Come and sit down and take it and eat and walk on water and heal people and cast out demons and build churches and share the gospel and watch transformation happen in your city and serve in the little itty-bitty ways that nobody ever sees and ever needs to know about because it's just a place that you and God connect and it's fun. Right? And serving the big ways where, where you know, city reaching and, and missions and giving and all kinds of big things that we think of as big that are just as important as little small things that are just as important as the really big things because this is all in God's economy and it's all in God's voice and it's all building God's kingdom. And in God's mind, there is no big and small people. There is sons. And that is you. And you are legitimate. So be who you are. Be a water walker. Let's pray. God, thank you for the beauty of your word to us. The way it changes, shifts, moves, makes us who we are. Your words are life. The enemy's words are death. Keep us listening to you. We worship you, God. We love you. We bless you. We say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. God, open for us what it means for us to receive our legitimacy in you. In the depths of our being, God, in the, in the, in the deep, deep places, maybe even places that we've shut down or walled off, places where the enemy's voice has been so strong, where the deception and the accusation have been so consistent, where they've been so um, agreed to, where the covenants are so strong, God, your words can break those things. So God, come. Come and call us to you, wherever it is that you want us to meet you, on the water, in the pain, in that relationship, in this loss, in this change, in the situation that we didn't want, didn't ask for, on the mountaintop where everything seems right. God, draw us deeply into you. May your words always win. Define us, God, again. So for you, my brothers and sisters at Cornerstone, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within you, within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.